listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week, we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today, we are joined by a very special guest, our first guest of the season, Andy Boyd. Andy is a playwright based in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. His play, The Trade Federation, or Let's Explore Globalization Through the Star Wars Prequels, is available through No Passport Press, and his play, Three Scenes in the Life of a Trotskyist, is available as a podcast. And welcome to our show, Andy. We're so excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be on the show. So we love to just start off with um, earliest memories. So what it was your life like as a small person before you ever heard oh about gosh. theater? Yeah, I think, yeah, before you ever heard about theater, it's hard because theater has been such a part of my life since I was pretty little. But I think before I ever saw, I think this is a memory that predates ever <laughs> seeing a play, which is um, I was at like a family church camp when I was two or three and I was the middle child, which afforded me a certain amount of anonymity uh, <laughs> within the family unit. And I somehow like escaped uh, my, my family's uh, close supervision and they didn't find me until like several hours later. And I was just eating cookies with an entirely different family. <laughs> and I seem to have oh. no, no like sense of, you know, that being inappropriate, it's just like, yeah, these are also adults who are also giving me cookies. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so um, so from your cookie-eating days with strangers, um, what – could you talk to us a bit about your journey into theater? So what led you to theater? Um, you know, what was the first play you ever saw or yeah, read? Sure. Yeah, so um, we grew up in Tacoma, Washington, which is a pretty like blue collar town. There's not a lot of like culture there. Um, but my mom had grown up in Minneapolis, which is like a very vibrant cultural scene, very vibrant theater scene. And so she really like sought out every little bit of culture that we could find in Tacoma. I think she was a bit sort of starved for that. Um, so when I was very little, we started going to plays and musicals at a couple of the like local um I guess sort of community theaters. Like there was one called Tacoma Musical Playhouse and I saw like guys and dolls and singing in the rain and stuff like that there. Um, and then there was another one in Lakewood, which was like a nearby town uh, where I saw, I remember seeing Man of La Mancha and <laughs> I saw, um, I saw some Shakespeare stuff. I saw um Fiddler on the Roof. So a lot of sort of classic American mid-century musicals in my early years. And then um, when I was in high school, we moved to Arizona. And while I was there, I got really into like sort of leftist agitprop theater from the 1960s. Um, I got a book of the San Francisco Mime Troops plays, uh, which I sort of devoured and like tried to get all my friends to read uh, with very little success. And then I saw... Teatro Campesino, when they were on tour, they came to Arizona State uh, University and I saw them there. And that was kind of a like life changing moment. Cool. Uh, very, very exciting to see that show. What was life changing about it? Well, it was just sort of the idea that they wanted to affect the way that you lived your life after you left the theater. There was like, you know, it was one of those kind of classic Teatro Campesino. Uh, uh, endings where they sort of like start chanting chants and singing songs and like they're <laughs> rousing the audience to to join along and I really got the sense that like I sh I was supposed to go out into the into the night and like I don't know start a riot or something um, and I feel like <laughs> that you? really I did not start a riot but I feel like it did sort of like encourage I mean you know the whole point of that of that style of theater is to like get people to take political action and so I feel like it didn't happen that night for me, but later that year, this was like my senior year of high school, um, SB 1070 was being was being passed in Arizona, which was this like notoriously draconian anti-immigration bill. Mm -hmm. And I think like part of that sort of momentum from that night of theater, like made me think, you know what, I should get involved in the, with this. And there were uh, 
protests and marches all through downtown Phoenix. I went to school downtown at Arizona, uh, Arizona School for the Arts, and I would like cut class to go march down to the Capitol and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of feel like I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't seen that play. Yeah, like it had this long lasting effect in your life. That yeah. was like, um, I, I don't know why this is what I'm thinking of, but I'm thinking of like delayed release medication uh-huh. where you like, yes. <laughs> you like swallow the pill and then it like it, it enters your bloodstream over the next 10 hours <laughs> this is like yeah over the yeah. next 10 years this piece of theater affected the way you lived your life and I think that that's like a really good way yeah I like that idea of like uh, yeah time release medicine I think that's a good <laughs> way to think about how theater changes the world in general because mm. yeah I mean it is often not it doesn't feel as direct, but, you know, a play like Angels in America, I'm sure had a sort of slowly acting effect on, you know, the ways that Americans saw gay people, for example, or or mm-hmm. thought about the AIDS epidemic or, you know, or any a number of things. I mean, that play has so many different issues uh, tied up in it. But um, but I think I think, yeah, that kind of slowly eroding uh, your your sort of prejudices and and defenses, I think is a very valuable thing that that theater can do. So let's talk about your play, The Trade Federation, or let's explore globalization through Star Wars prequels. I mean, what a title. Thank you. you. (laughs) Um, So love to hear about the inspiration behind the play and, you know, and how did you come up with that title? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um, I definitely came up with the idea first. I like the, I like the, I don't know. There's something appealing to me about the like short title, long subtitle thing. (laughs) Um, and like, this is, yeah, Herman Melville's one of my favorite authors and he like, almost all of his novels have a subtitle. My favorite uh, title subtitle from him is Pierre or the ambiguities. I just think that's like the best (laughs) title ever. Um, so there's maybe a bit of a Melville nod with that, but yeah, in terms of the inspiration for the play, I mean, I, I've been like a star Wars fan since I was a little kid as like a lot of, you know, people are, um, and, and I was born in 1991. So I was like seven when, uh, episode one came out which is kind of like the perfect age to see that movie because it's all about like a little kid being the hero mm-hmm. um so that was like a very foundational moment for me uh I'd, I'd already seen the original trilogy by that time my dad like made sure that i you know went into episode one prepared in that <laughs> sense um and then i was like reading a, an av club article a couple of years ago and it was like making fun of episode one and specifically the idea that George Lucas thought it would be interesting to have these long scenes about trade negotiations and like, <laughs> how boring is that? And I was sort of like, I don't know. Like I, I understand that it is boring. Like no, you know, no argument there, but like, it sounds like it could be interesting. Like it sounded like if they'd really taken that seriously um, and like, you know, really wanted to explore the economy of Star Wars, like that could be done in an interesting way. And actually I feel like the Ryan Johnson Star Wars movie kind of did that a little bit to the extent that like, when I saw that I was briefly in despair that like this play no longer worked because they just like actually did make Star Wars into a leftist allegory. But then luckily they (laughs) sort of retconned that in the next movie. So I think we're good. Um, And so, yeah, so I was like thinking about, you know, the economy of Star Wars and I was also reading a bunch about the IMF, which is the the International Monetary Fund, which is this like sort of shadowy institution that uh, I think sort of rules through boredom and through sort of like obscuring of what they actually do through like bureaucratic language. So I was reading books like The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, and I started to realize that like there was a connection there between the sort of boredom of the Trade Federation scenes in episode one and the boredom of like these internet international uh organizations that order the global economy so i kind of just put them together and then I, I and then i was like so it should be called the trade federation but i wanted but the trade federation just as a title sounds a bit austere so i mm. wanted to have like a subtitle that that gave you a sense of like oh there are there are jokes don't worry <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting because the I'm thinking about the first scene of the play. One of the things I really like about it is we we start off thinking we're in one kind of a scene and then mm-hmm. it turns and actually um you know and and we kind of become aware that it's weird because of how the characters become mouthpieces for the writer in this really obvious yeah. way. 
Um, yeah. and, and so we, we notice that before we even find out that the writer is a character. But I, I was wondering, is that something that you um, have experienced in your own writing process that like you – you're writing characters and they sound a little bit too much like you and you have to kind of go back and rewrite. Oh, yeah, because for that's... Sure. So, so talk a little bit about, yeah, what that process is like or how, how you kind of pull yeah, from that experience. I, I do feel like this, uh-huh. This, this play is definitely to an extent me like trying to head off certain criticisms of my writing before <laughs> like people can make them, Um, you know, like sort of like I was in grad school when I wrote, you know, at least the first couple of drafts of this play and we did a I, I went to grad school at Columbia and I, I we did a production of it at Columbia the 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 current version's pretty different than that production but like I, I was started working on it there and like a, a comment I kept on hearing about my work over and over again is so that it was like too didactic and had too strong a point of view um, <laughs> and so I was like all right I'm gonna make a play that's even more didactic <laughs> um, and so yeah that's I'll 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 cop to that, and then kind of trying to disarm it by like the play itself acknowledging that those in-world scenes are like bad. Um, so, but I mean, I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. That you have these strong mm-hmm. ideas and you want to put them in a play, and it's sometimes really hard to figure out how to make that not just like you telling your ideas to the audience. <laughs> yeah, but I also feel like, I don't know, I think a certain amount of, like, telling the audience stuff is fine. Yeah, I, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I think there's, like, you know, especially if you're writing about things people don't know about, like, a certain amount of, I don't know, exposition. Like, there's, obviously, there's, like, graceful ways to do exposition, but I think there's kind of a prejudice against, like, any information in a play. <laughs> but, right. like, I don't know, I think sometimes you hmm. need that. Like, thinking about, like... um David Henry Huang was one of my professors at Columbia and and Butterfly has a ton of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's got a ton of like very detailed information about, you know, the changing relationship of like China to Vietnam over the course of the 60s and 70s. I mean, like all of that stuff is like very important for you to understand just the basic plot of like the love story of that play. Mm-hmm. But you but if you don't know the history of China, that play doesn't make sense. And so he has to tell it to you. And I think that's fine. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, I am somebody who really loves just like going to lectures and learning, but sure, yeah. somehow when it's in a play, we expect it to be disguised somehow. <laughs> and like, I feel like, you know, documentaries are having a huge moment now. It's like, I, I, I don't think people actually mind as much having information told to them when it's like necessary for the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, as you're talking about the title, uh, you're like, oh, the Trade Federation, uh, but you added the subtitle because you want a little more um, making the audience know like, oh, there's going to be jokes. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, I mean, so tell talk to us about um, why is that so important? Like having your title, you know, obviously that's the first impression, you know, when people like, look at the play is like, how, why do you, why is it so important to capture what your play is about through that title? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, yeah, it is that kind of first impression thing. And just, I don't know, I feel like it's so... Also, also, you know, the subtitle makes clear that there is like a Star Wars connection. So mm-hmm. I think there were, when we did the, with the production in 2019, there were some people who just came because they were like big Star Wars fans and would see things that were even tangentially about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think there's like... There's so many plays, you know, there's so many plays all the time. And so I feel like just to get a little bit of like uh, a sort of advertisement for the play yeah, to be totally. part of the title, um, I think is is useful just to kind of capture eyeballs. Yeah, for me, I I feel like I'm constantly when I'm writing the play, my own plays and the title is something I either just like I'll work on it. I'll just put this title now tag it and then I'll just come back to it later but then I end just end up sticking with that title I don't know mm. if the title starts inspiring the writing or mm-hmm. if the title is just something I'm just like I'm trapped with this I can't leave I'm just like I can't let it go <laughs> to, like, yeah go yeah to. yeah I've had I've had that too where like some titles are there from the beginning and some are like the last thing I come up with and this was definitely one that was there from pretty much from the beginning beginning mm. yeah so let's talk about your writing process as a whole. Um, what tips and tricks have you learned along the way that works for you um, and helped you grow 
as a writer. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I do a lot of research. I think that's um, helpful for me. I'm like not particularly interested in myself. Like I feel like there's a paradigm in contemporary <laughs> playwriting that mm-hmm. like the reason why everyone writes is to express themselves in like a pretty straightforwardly autobiographical way. But that's not true for me. Um, for for one, I think like you know I'm like a white dude. Like I don't <laughs> I don't feel like my my like life story is particularly you know, compelling or necessary. I don't, I, I don't really <laughs> want to see plays about myself. Uh, I already know myself. Um, I, and we're I feel like I'm much... generation. We grew up I... having Mr. Rogers tell us that we're special. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm much more interested in like exploring the world around me um, than I am exploring myself. Uh, though, obviously, like, you know, it, it it ends up being about yourself in some way, mm-hmm. though, just often not in a like straightforwardly autobiographical way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I think I think like trying to read and listen to a bunch of stuff outside of theater has been really helpful for me in my writing process. Um, I read a lot of plays, but I also read a lot of things that aren't plays. And I listen to a lot of like, you know, podcasts about history and politics and and other things like that. Um, I think sometimes when like when theater people only care about theater, you you can kind of tell it kind of shows up in the work. Uh, Mm. And I'm not not that interested in like writing plays that are primarily interested in making an intervention in kind of theater history. Um, That's that's less interesting to me than like, yeah, writing a play about the IMF (laughs) or something. So give us some examples of writers or um documentaries or podcasts that you're particularly excited about right now you mean like outside of theater yeah okay yeah uh, there's a podcast called the dig which is great and it's every week and it's like two hours long <laughs> and it's wow. just like a very in-depth interview with a scholar or an activist whose work uh informs left-wing political struggle like it's very intentionally oh, a cool. podcast for like how do you how do you do politics more effectively um, but that understands that like that might mean, well, let's go back and look what look at how John Locke ordered settler colonialism, you know, like that that it takes a very wide, wide lens view of like what might be the relevant context for like running a a, a campaign. So that's a really good one. I like awesome. that one a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Um, and there are some times where I'm like, I don't need two hours on this particular topic (laughs) i don't i don't listen to every episode all the way through but but i I do listen to a lot of them all the way through um and then a a book i just read that i thought was really fantastic and a kind of great model for um kind of like exploring some of these themes in fiction was a book called the cold millions by jess walter which is about the iww struggle in spokane in the early 20th century the iww is the industrial workers of the world who are this sort of like anarcho-socialist nonviolent interracial union um and and that book does a really great job of like telling you a lot of the necessary like context and information about about what that union meant but also it's kind of a thriller like it's sort of a western almost uh in in the plot there's like shootouts and double crosses and stuff like that so Mm. that's a great one are there any of these kinds of um either podcasts or nonfiction books or documentaries you've seen that have uh, inspired you to write a particular play? Like learning about some topic Um, that where you were like, oh, I have to sit down and write a play about this. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like most of my ideas for plays come from like some offhand comment in something I'm, I'm reading. Mm. Like I I was reading a book about, uh, I, I wrote a play about, about the year that Diego Rivera spent in Detroit uh, painting the Detroit industry murals. And like one of the things that's weird about that is that that project was funded by Henry Ford's son. So you have this like communist (laughs) artist painting this mural for like the world at the time, the world's richest man, Mm -hmm. um, which is sort of odd. And I, I came across a detail in a book and I, I don't think I ended up actually using any information from this particular book in that play, but Henry Ford had a rubber plantation in Brazil and a lot of the foremen on the rubber plantation were the descendants of this Confederate colony that had been founded in uh, Brazil. 
uh, by kind of like ex-Confederates who wanted to keep the dream of the Confederacy alive. And then their like grandchildren worked on this rubber plantation. Um, and I just became fascinated with that idea of like uh, of that of that neo-Confederate colony. So I wrote a play about that. So it'll often be, and and I feel like this is like a, a really helpful type of historical detail is like when it's something very suggestive, but that there's been very little written about. Mm. Like, I feel like if I, I would never write a play about like Abraham Lincoln or something because there's just too much material. Mm. Um, there's there, And it kind of makes it so that there's, it's really hard to like imagine yourself into it because anything you want to know, you can just find out. But if there's something where there's only like a couple of news articles written about it, mm-hmm. you can kind of take that, take the bare bones of that and and fill in the details that you think would be interesting if they were true. Like there's more room. For yeah. You. yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So here's a question, Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a game we like to play. Great. Name three playwrights, living or dead, that you would invite to a dinner party. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Dinner parties terrify me, but I'll, I'll play. Anyway. <laughs> you don't have to do the cooking. Um, it's catered. You just have okay, to great. pick it's the catered. guests. <laughs> Gosh. Okay. Um, so you just did an episode on Carol Churchill. She's definitely yes. one that I would I would oh love to gosh, have at a choice. dinner party. Just such an amazing playwright, and I feel like the stuff that she does. With, I mean, so I, I I forget which one of you, but one of you was like, I love her plays, but some of them I just don't understand at all, um, and I <laughs> completely identify with that feeling. That like I think she is a complete genius absolutely the most uh, significant living playwright. And there are some of her plays that I just don't understand why she wrote them or what they're supposed to be about. Um, so but you, yeah, but would her, you ask her, her if she were at your dinner party, would you be like, Carol Churchill, please explain your work to me? Oh no, I would never be that disrespectful <laughs> to the great Carol Churchill. I feel like my interview, do you know that Chris Farley sketch where he's interviewing Paul McCartney? And so the, the, the joke huh? of it is that he, he just asks questions like, Remember when you were in the Beatles and Paul McCartney was like, yes, Chris, I do. And he says, that was awesome. I feel like that'd be me with Carol Churchill. I'd be like, remember Joint Stock Company? She'd be like, yes. I'd be like, that was cool. A lot of good plays there. So Carol Churchill for sure. Um, I think Sophocles, Whoa. if he could speak English, I think it'd be great. I feel like Sophocles I think, is so. I mean, I, you could learn Greek for Sophocles. I would, yeah, I'd learn ancient Greek for him if I knew. <laughs> if I had like a yeah, a couple of years to prepare for this dinner party. Um, I mean, I think that his plays are just so extraordinary, and it's like they're like the fourth surviving play, and yeah. it's like kind of incredible how fully developed that art form was. Um, and I, I think that was actually like pretty early after like, you know, they started doing dialogue at all. Like, I think that's like within living memory of, you know, when theater was just storytelling and, Mm -hmm. and they're just extraordinary. Like they just work so well. I saw a production of um, Oedipus in like, I forget even what language it was in. It was in like some Eastern European language and I saw it in China Um, and it was, and I was like, transfixed it's such a good play yeah the line where he's talking to the messenger character um and Mm. and the messenger is is explaining you know that he knew he was supposed to kill baby oedipus but didn't do it and that's what caused everything that came after that and oedipus asks him you know why did you not kill me and he says out of mercy Mm. like oh that's like the best. That's like the best moment in theater. And it's like 20 years after they started doing theater. Yeah. So Carol Churchill, Sophocles. Um, I would love to see what Sophocles and Carol Churchill have to say to each other. That might be enough. <laughs> that way. Just the two of them, that might be enough. No, pick another one. Pick a third. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me see. Mm. Maybe Adrian Kennedy. Oh, this is such a good dinner party. I'm going to invite myself. <laughs> what a good choice. Tell us why you picked her. Um, I, I, I think I, I was thinking about her and Carol Churchill just being like amazing playwrights who, you know, knock on wood, we probably don't have that much longer with. Um, and I think like her experiments with form are also just totally yeah. mind blowing. Like I would love yeah. to hear, like I would love to, to see like what Sophocles would 
how Sophocles would respond to a play like a movie star has to star in black and white. Like what would he, would he be able to follow it at all? Who knows? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good dinner party. Okay. What I'm just curious though. Um, what is at the table? Like what is the food? What's the food? <laughs> okay. So I'm a vegetarian, but I'll forget that for this answer. I heard somebody who was like the official caterer at the white house interviewed and somebody and the, the interviewer was like, what would you serve at uh, a dinner that was part of like a very high stakes summit with like Iran mm. or something? Mm-hmm. And she said, I would serve ribs because you you have to eat them messily. And so it would kind of bring down <laughs> a barrier. And I thought that was a pretty great answer. So maybe oh, I'd maybe fantastic. I'd serve like barbecued tofu and I wouldn't provide any utensils or something like that. <laughs> amazing that's amazing yeah barbecue tofu oh my gosh and like a lot of cookies yeah yeah or shakshuka (laughs) or something like that something really messy okay okay so i'm so curious to know if you're an audience member reader who read your play or saw your play for the first time how they might describe you in one word how they might describe me Mm -hmm. hmm gosh that's so hard i think this is the hardest question though it is the hardest question yeah i feel like this is so hard for this play because like i am a character in this play but the version of me is this like (laughs) sort of gonzo theatricalized version of me so Mm -hmm. i don't know how would they describe me like chatty maybe (laughs) i love that Oh, yeah. Okay. Chatty. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, yeah. How would you describe me based on that play? I'm interested. Based to... on a play? Um, intellectual. Okay. Like, I feel I like. Just think... But it's also answer. very dumb. Like we should like emphasize the play is. Yeah. There's like definitely a lot of intellectual stuff in it, but there's also like, you know, I don't mean to spoil too much, but there's like a lot of very silly audience interaction. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's, there's the yin and the yang in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, but I think there are just some scenes uh, where the character as you, or you're having these conversations like deeply about um, Star Wars, <laughs> which yeah. is like, yeah, you're right. It's like, like I'm not a Star Wars person. Like I'm, I've seen the movies and I'm not like a huge Kung Ho fan, but I understand like the, the the conversation the characters are having, like that I could imagine my uh, fiance would talk like he, he loves, he's a huge Star Wars fan. So like he probably talks about these things to himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but so is this, there's this, there is some, this it is interesting that how Star Wars inspires these conversations. Like people, the fans have mm-hmm. thinking so deeply about something. So in that aspect, I was like, though that type, that person that thinks so deeply, like they are intellectuals. I mean, they, to, to think mm-hmm. so right. big about um, the world and it has this expansive view about what they want to talk about. Um Because I think there's like, there's something so compelling about the Star Wars universe and especially in the original trilogy, like how spare it is. Like they Mm -hmm. give you these little glimpses into different parts of the world, but they don't really like explain Mm -hmm. them in the movies themselves. So there's, I think, a great desire for a lot of Star Wars fans to like figure out, to learn everything about this world and to sort of inhabit this world. And I think Mm. that's kind of the key to anything becoming a like nerd obsession is this kind of sense of infinite knowability. Um, Mm And that makes so much sense that there's room for the fans to kind of create it alongside the original yeah, yeah. piece. And what's been, yeah. what's been interesting to me over the past couple of years too, is like seeing how a lot of these giant film franchises are like directly responding to fan criticism. Um, sometimes in ways that I think are like wildly yeah. problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, like we don't like when that Asian woman gets to do things, don't let her do things in the next movie. And Disney's like, yes, we will do that. Um, but like, I, I think that um, I think that there's always a sort of more of a dialectical relationship between these like giant corporations and the fans than the giant corporations are willing to admit because they want to be like, no, we own we own this mm. property. And it's like you may legally own it, but you actually 
don't like you can't own a narrative like that especially one as sort of powerful and and ubiquitous as star wars like you put that into the universe and and Mm -hmm. once they do that it's kind of out of their hands this is making me think too about there's i think a big thread in this play about meeting your heroes and the dangers of that and the disillusionment and i'm wondering what's your take on this question of the moment which is like can we still appreciate the art even if the artist is a jerk or you know a homophobe or something Mm. like what how do you approach that kind of a question yeah, that's rough. Because yeah, what what happens in this play is that I meet George Lucas and he at least initially just doesn't like me at all. Which has happened <laughs> numerous times when I've met Wait, you really met heroes. George Lucas? <laughs> no, 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 no. Not George <laughs> Not George Lucas specifically, but like other people that I really admire and I finally meet them and I just only say the dumbest things I can think of for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I, I met Susan Laurie Parks when I was eighteen and I'm just like I just hope she doesn't remember our interaction oh because it was like really awkward. Um, and she's like one of the best players alive. So hopefully she, she oh won't hear this and be reminded of that. But yeah, in terms of the like ethical question of like, can you separate the artist from the art? I don't, I think that's really tricky because for me, like I can't, like, it's not even just an ethical thing. It's like, I, I intellectually cannot, separate those things Mm -hmm. like you know like this is probably not going to be a big surprise but like Woody Allen was a big inspiration to me as a young writer I mean I can totally see that in your in your humor and yeah yeah and the way that like I I was really inspired by the way that he uses humor to kind of like explore deeper issues like uh like in love and death like he wrote he made a comedy about his love of 19th century Russian literature, which is just sort of like an insane thing to do. Um, <laughs> but it's like very funny, like one of his funniest movies. But I I can't I I can't watch that movie. I I, I don't watch any of his movies anymore. I I I had a bunch of his books. I even had his stand-up album from the 60s and I threw all of those away. Because I just like I think I think part of the appeal of his movies was like him as a person. Yeah. And being like, what a lovable guy and he's not a lovable guy he actually is turns out to be kind of a monster and like once you know that about him they're just not the films just don't work anymore they're just not charming or amusing and like all this sort of like like there's a there's a joke in love and death about being attracted to 13 year old girls and you just that's not funny it's not funny anymore you know um Mm. so i feel like yeah i can't i i do feel like when I'm watching any kind of art, whether it's like a play or if I'm reading a book or something, part of what I think is going on, part of what I feel is going on is that I'm having like a direct connection with that author. And, and I, like I was talking, a friend of mine, Nora Casey, who's another playwright um, describes this as she once fell in love with Victor Hugo. She was reading Les Miserables and realized (laughs) like she had a crush on Victor Hugo. And I like totally feel that. Like I, like, like Cervantes, what a lovable, you know, adorable guy. Like Melville, oh my God! Like how can you, how can you read <laughs> Moby Dick and not like fall in love with Herman Melville? So I don't know. I, I definitely, I mean, there's nobody's perfect, and I feel like there's, there's a sort of vague line beyond which I can't follow a creator anymore. Um, but there's definitely a line. I feel like people who are like, you should be able to completely separate those two. It's like, well, maybe you just consume art in a totally different way than I do, but I, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Like every time you encounter a piece of artwork, you're looking to, to be in some kind of relationship to that artist. Yeah. And it's just not possible if they are a repulsive person. (laughs) It sounds like. Yeah. And I also feel like most of the times when people are repulsive people, it like does show up in their art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it's any, like Roman Polanski, like oh my gosh. Roman Polanski movies seem like the kind of movies someone like Roman Polanski would make, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know. I can't get past that. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's just like an incredibly naive way to think about art. Like, I don't know, but I, that's, that's how I feel. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, well, the artist is, typically right they're putting something out there that's part of them and there's so there's like a connection immediately to what they are trying to say or the point of view or the work that they're putting out i mean you you really don't know 
um, the audience you're attracting, I guess. Yeah. Um, that that is that is. I'm, I'm now I'm thinking like a siren. <laughs> like this is, you're drawn to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the way I always think about it is that when you watch a play or a movie or read a book, you're experiencing that creator's worldview and right. looking yeah. at the world through their eyes. And there are some people that I just don't want to look through their eyes. Like I don't want to see the world the way they see it. <laughs> world, you know, yeah, whether that's yeah. like misogyny or racism or whatever. I'm just like, I cannot take on your lens to look at the world. It's mm-hmm. too um, icky. <laughs> icky. What a great yeah. word. Yeah. And then, yeah. I encounter the argument too that like, well, you just have to appreciate it for the technique and for the form, but like the technique Mm -hmm. is the purpose of technique is to like tell a story and to communicate Mm -hmm. a certain worldview and to like, you know, I don't know, express something, whether it's like Mm -hmm. the self or, or just kind of an idea about how the world is supposed to work or how the world does work. Like form and, and content are inextricably bound. I don't think you can Mm -hmm. separate them in that in a neat way all right so before we move on to glistens um what advice would you give to uh young writers or you know playwrights who are just getting into writing for the first time or thinking about uh playwriting uh well what advice would you give them to encourage to think outside the box when it comes to playwriting sure yeah i mean i think basically the only reason to be a playwright is to like try to write plays in a different way that you've never seen anyone else write before. Because if you're just like, I sometimes I will talk to playwrights who are like trying to figure out the key to like writing a successful play. And I just think like, why wouldn't you be trying? Like, if that's your goal to like learn the rules to create something people like, why wouldn't you be working in like a form that people like, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like a more popular art form yeah like if you're just gonna try to like you know make us tell a story how everyone else tells a story then like become a screenwriter or something mm. like it's you know screenwriting seems very lucrative uh I've, I've made almost no money through writing plays so mm-hmm. so I feel like what playwriting offers is freedom mm-hmm. um you know to mm-hmm. like you can put on a play for you know five thousand dollars and it can you can tell the story however you want uh, and that's, that's like the only reason to do it, I think. So I guess I, I feel like I have very little like actual advice in terms of like form, you know, I don't know, start scenes late, introduce conflict early. Like there's sure. I feel like I could, I could go through all the like playwriting rules in like 15 minutes, <laughs> but like, that's not the point. You know, the point mm-hmm. is like trying to figure it out. Like there's this Pauline Kale quote I always think about where she says art is the greatest game because you make up the rules as you go along. Mm. And I feel like that's like, that's how I think about playwriting. I'm always trying to do something I've, I haven't either. I haven't seen before or, or at least I haven't done before. So I don't know. I guess that would be my advice. Like don't listen to anybody who tells you this is the one way you have to write a play. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just make it up and do something new. Yeah. I mean, really, like, we just don't have that long on Earth, you know? Like, life is just very short. So, yeah. I don't know. I guess I, I I feel like it's hard to express these feelings without just sounding very pretentious. But, like, I don't know. I feel like I really value my autonomy artistically. Um, and I, I guess I would encourage anybody who's interested in theater to to, like, I don't know, take their work seriously in that way, which I think is different than taking yourself seriously. But I do think like you should try very hard to like not compromise and to like Mm -hmm. make the kind of stuff you want to make. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think if you do that, you'll, you'll find an audience or maybe you won't, but like you just said, like you kind of can't control what audience you do or don't get. So you might as well just like make the thing you would want to see. Yeah. Well, and with, COVID, I think it's going to be so interesting when we all get to go back into the theater because I think we're going to be hyper aware that like really everything could shut down again at any moment. And so, you know, we just don't have this sense of, oh, there will always be another show 
we don't have that same sense anymore because like actually maybe the theaters will shut down for a year. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I hope that I'll appreciate plays more when this is all over plays as these sort of flickering evanescent things that, that are just there one moment and gone the next. Like that's also very moving to me. And I think it's sort of like, it's important to keep in mind that that's everything. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I collect vinyl records and they just always inevitably start skipping or scratching or something like they just degrade over Mm -hmm. time. And like everything does, like I have books that fall apart and like everything is temporary and theater is just more temporary than other things, but it's, it's just a matter of degree. So I think that's something that I find very like moving and profound about theater is that I think it sort of literalizes that sense of temporariness that is like so easy to lose track of and maybe mm-hmm. maybe one of the things that covid will do is to remind us of that that like anything could be taken away at any moment oh gosh yeah that's mm-hmm. so true on that note where can our listeners find you uh andyjboyd.com that's my website uh you can find my plays there uh links to you if you want to buy the script of the trade federation that's on there it links to the podcast version of Three scenes in the life of a Trotskyist is there. Uh, yeah, that's the place to go. I also, I also have an Instagram, which is Andy J. Boyd, which I, I just do cartoons there. Cool. <laughs> cool. Actually, I checked out your Instagram. That, it's really funny. Oh, it's, thanks. Uh, every one of its cartoons, like I was like, oh, this is really funny. A lot of them are really funny and clever. Oh, so. thanks. Yeah, I love cartoons. I love that so much because I often think about how cartoons are a lot like plays. I mean, you're telling a story through dialogue yeah yeah the combination of like word and image image. yeah that that was like Mm -hmm. pretty consciously one of the things i was trying to practice when i started doing cartoons and i think like anyone can do cart like cartoons aren't hard like we all draw little cartoons when we're kids and we just stop at some point but like yeah you could you could just not you know you could just like do a little drawing and you know put it on the internet or not put it on the internet or whatever um i don't draw cartoons but i do it's so weird i just always draw when I'm just doodling, it's always the same flower. Like I just draw the same flower Ooh. that I, I can't draw anything else, but I always draw this like same flower when I'm just doodling. Um, I think you should put a speech bubble creepy. on that flower and find out what it wants to tell you. Yeah. Um, it says, please stop drawing me. <laughs> like, <laughs> why you obsessively draw me. <laughs> um, okay. So glistens. Um, at the end of the show, we like to share our favorite glistens of the week. Uh, it could be literally anything, a music we learned or some headline, anything that caught your attention uh, from the week. And so um, I could start off first. Um, my glisten is I had a dream. Uh, speaking of which, all the fear <laughs> that we just talked about is like I had a dream. I was in the theater and I just started to cry. Like, um <laughs> And Sam was, Sam was asking me before we started recording, like, what was the play? Or like, what, you know, were, you, were people wearing masks? I was like, no, I don't remember. It was just me and like spotlight with the, the <laughs> stage. And But it happened to be um, a show that I would never really go to, which is an opera. And it was just like listening to people sing. And I was like crying. And so that wasn't my dream. And I was like, man, I, I guess at some level, I really do miss theater. <laughs> So um, sad. It was like it was a very sad dream. Where I don't well, you know, waking up crying is like the saddest <laughs> thing. So, uh, Do you guys feel like you would just see like if if it was safe to see a play, would you basically just see anything right now? I live in I Maine, so. so like I was already before COVID, I was already at the stage where I was would just go see anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot to choose from. Sure. Um, Where in Maine so do you live? I live in Belfast, Maine, which is like uh, it's about two hours north of Portland. Okay, um, in I have an what's uncle in Brunswick. Maine. Oh, cool! Yeah, Brunswick Beautiful is cute. Area. Yeah, yeah. But yes, the answer is yes. Um, but like literally a few months before COVID started, I went to see this performance that was um. <laughs> like a girl scout written and performed show called murder in the coffee shop or something oh no murder in the donut shop it was something like that it was a murder mystery written and performed by like fifth graders 
that was the kind of thing I was going to see here in Belfast, Maine before yeah. the pandemic started. Yeah. Let's let's share that. What was um Andy, what was your last play you saw before the shutdown? Oh gosh. Um I'm not sure, but I think it was, there was this show at the public that was like a documentary theater piece about coal miners. I think that was Mm. the last piece I saw. Mm. Yeah, Mm. could be. Actually, the last piece I saw. But I really was like, like, I'm I'm so bad at seeing stuff. Go ahead. Mm. You're bad at seeing stuff, but that will change now that you, Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But I also feel like, I don't know. So like COVID has obviously been horrible and like a half a million Americans died and more people all over the world and it ruined everyone's lives. That being said, it is nice <laughs> to sort of slow down a little bit, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. Sure. I feel like maybe I won't be as frantic to like see everything. Mm. Sarah, what was the last thing you saw before COVID? Well, you know, I was doing a lot of sketch comedy. So I was just watching sketch comedies all over theater um so or all over la so i'm trying to remember what was the most i i watched so many sketch comedy shows live shows that i don't blur to me yeah. but a lot of it was from the theater that was part of pack theater um um so yeah in my own show that i was in with my team mm-hmm. so yeah sketch comedy i miss it all right who's next can Listed. i can i ask you a question yeah. about that actually mm-hmm just is writing sketches for you does that feel like it's like a different muscle than writing plays or does that does it feel all like kind of the same um it's definitely way different uh because so much you first of all sketches are they i don't know over time i guess with youtube um the online like sketches live sketches have to be shorter unless there's some other rule like you can want if you want to do something entirely different um but yeah it's really short like every line is a joke and so you kind of have to meet it and there's like a nugget of what the comic idea is that you kind of have to think deeply about and you're constantly having to get that joke out mm. so in that sense it's like that but in terms of being theatrical um being live um just the state like that is there's some similarities there when you're writing to the live audience which is like a play you're constantly you're just thinking about the stage and um but when it comes to the sketches like all the information has to get out sooner like the mm-hmm. first two lines like you have to know who this relationship of the people are because you only have three pages to write this whole scene um the whole sketch um so you it is like you're exercising this muscle of trying to be very efficient and very quick and um and also have to be funny. <laughs> <It's> like, um, <laughs> so yeah, it is definitely different. But when it comes to theatricality of it all, it's it's much like a play. I feel like there's like so much that theater could learn from sketch comedy because like, I mean, there are sketches that are written like the day they're performed. Mm, like, yeah. I feel like every time yeah. I write a play, it's like, well, maybe this will be performed in three years. You know? Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that immediacy. And also, yeah. I'm sure sketch comedy has taught you to just like, try things and then let it go like if it doesn't work or even if it does work it's still over and then you have to go on to the next thing Mm -hmm. and it's such a team effort like Mm. um so much of the performers bring in as much as like i'll write the sketch but the performers could be like changing up the lines last minute and you know that's funnier and Mm -hmm. so it really is such a collaborative team effort and that's why like it's it's not Sergio sketch comedy it's like it's the team name like it's nobody's nobody's a star of anything you know so it's because so you kind of um have to let go of that immediately like this isn't my team like this mm-hmm. is our team and everyone has ownership even the the performers um so that's kind of what I like about it too cool well, my glisten is just, I'm just so excited about all the vaccines. Um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was just approved, and um, my dad is fully vaccinated, which is such a relief, and, like, my aunts and uncles and all the doctors I know, and I'm just, like, really happy that people are getting vaccinated and things seem to be speeding up, and it's so amazing. It's, I mean, we're coming up on the one-year mark of when everything shut down, and we already 
have so many people vaccinated. So that's my glisten. What about you, Andy? Yeah. So I guess I maybe kind of misinterpreted this. Does it can it be, be anything. It can be anything. Okay, great. Um, so a <laughs> friend of mine uh, recommended that I listen to Japanese city pop, which is like a, a genre of pop music from the 80s from Japan. So cool. I got this compilation called Mellow, which is the subtitle is J-AOR, which is like AOR is like album oriented rock. But this doesn't sound anything like what that term would be used to describe in America. Uh, and it's just great. It's like really like reverby and dancey and like romantic. And I don't speak Japanese, so I have no idea what they're saying. And there's something kind of great about like, but it's like a very emotional style of music. So there's something kind of great about like somebody really singing and like really trying to like communicate something. And I just don't have any idea like literally what it is. <laughs> So I've been enjoying that a lot. Cool. That sounds fun. Japanese city pop. Do you yeah. like, like when you're by yourself playing this music, do you like dance around your apartment? I don't really dance. <laughs> I kind of like, I, I don't know. No, I don't. I, I could have lied, but I don't really dance. <laughs> you just enjoy it. You just listen to it and enjoy it. Yeah. That's awesome. People have been posting videos of them dancing. Like, no, I mean, like, like alone in the room <laughs> like it's a way to like release all the, the feelings that we're all feeling but just like i danced alone in my room what, which like are you really alone if you're recording it for the internet i mean come on yeah that's a performance people that is not dancing alone in your room <laughs> but yeah i mean i feel like with like tiktok and and instagram videos and stuff like I feel like we're going to see this huge democratization of dance and choreography sort of similarly to like how like handheld video cameras did that with like mm. home videos in the sixties. And like, oh. I have no idea what that's going to do, but I think it's going to be, I think the sort of ripple effects of that are going to be seen in like contemporary dance in the next couple of decades. Oh, totally. You heard it here first kids. Um, <laughs> yeah. Andy's making the, prediction. <laughs> the coldest of cold takes, but sure. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks so much for coming onto our show, Andy. Yeah, this was so fun. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.